This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 115. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can do so by going to Facebook and searching for Brian McClanahan. Also on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to go out there on those social media platforms and search for me, you, of course, can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you got all the little buttons. Just click on those buttons. It'll take you right to my social media accounts. Also, when you're on my webpage, just give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly as well, Forgotten Founders. And, of course, you can support the podcast by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, anything to help keep the podcast going, help keep the lights on, and help me keeping... Uh, help keeping me uh, delivering content to you. So uh, anything you want to send my way is greatly appreciated. Also, if you do like this podcast, please review it and rate it on iTunes. Uh, Also, if you've uh, purchased a copy of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, please go on out to Amazon and leave me a review. More reviews equal more book sales. So uh, more people reading the book and more people interested in it. It is available uh, on Amazon and online everywhere. I think uh, within the next uh, week or so, it will be available uh, also in bookstores. So there was a little delay in shipping. So anyways, uh, go on out there and purchase that if you're interested in the book. And you should be. Uh, there's there's no doubt about uh, the fact that uh, you should be out there getting that book and learning all the gory details about Alexander Hamilton's constitutional machinations and the three judges who helped him do it all. Uh, also, the there is a class, a full class now, 12 lecture class, on the book available at LearnTrueHistory.com. If you have not subscribed to Learn True History, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com, you want to go out there and get that too. Okay, so that said, I actually want to talk about something today that's, um, I wrote a little review about this yesterday at the Abbeville Institute website, AbbevilleInstitute.org, and uh, it's a book review of a, of a really great book and uh, one that is sorely needed uh, and it's the book is entitled Southern Reconstruction by Philip Lee. And the reason I say it's sorely needed is because our view of Reconstruction in America has been dominated by Eric Foner now for, uh, geez, uh, several decades. Uh, in fact, you can say going back to really the, the uh, 1990s uh, and even before that. But uh, our, our understanding of Reconstruction has been uh, has been uh, described as now an unfinished revolution uh, that something happened you know we had this revolution beginning in the 1860s and then of course these evil uh, people uh, put the brakes on it uh, evil southerners or even evil northerners put the brakes on it and stopped this glorious revolution from taking place in America and that view often looks at reconstruction everything that happened in reconstruction as a beneficial thing uh, that Reconstruction was good for America, that Reconstruction was good for the South, uh, and good for the North as well. Uh, this, was a, this was a grand time. If we could just have finished the Revolution, uh, we would have been better off. And in fact, uh, Foner also wrote a book, a little tiny book, entitled Nothing But Freedom. And um, it's a look at, at Reconstruction in the South, and it's uh, 
The interesting thing about these books is that Foner essentially focuses entirely on the social aspects of Reconstruction and doesn't really uh, concern himself with the economic repercussions, the political repercussions. And what's happened over time with Reconstruction is that you have a a situation where Reconstruction is viewed as a period that begins essentially in 1865, or maybe even a little bit before that if you want to backtrack just a little bit, and ends in 1877, and that's it. Reconstruction is over. It's a very narrow view of Reconstruction. I remember in graduate school, I, I took a, when I was taking a seminar, a writing seminar, the professor came in and, and pulled out a, uh, a, a chart, and um, he said, okay, this is... This is, the, this is the understanding of Reconstruction that we have from the historical establishment. Uh, and this, By the way, this was not Clyde Wilson, but it was another professor. Um, and uh, he said, this is what we have, and look at it. And if you look at the chart, the view of Reconstruction and the, and the duration of Reconstruction, the, the topics of Reconstruction when, when historians used to talk about in the early 20th century, it was very broad. And as you move forward in the 20th century, it narrows, 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 and now you get this very narrow view of Reconstruction that uh, doesn't deviate really from, from the time frame of Reconstruction or even the topics of Reconstruction. In fact, what's happened is, uh, is historians generally focus only on the social aspects of Reconstruction. And they've taken the phoner approach that Reconstruction was an unfinished revolution, that uh, Reconstruction was a good thing for the United States, and uh, that stopping it retarded the United States, retar retarded progress in the United States, uh, you know, made it to where uh, we, we basically have gotten to a point in America where this current wave of uh, attacks on, on Confederate symbols or uh, Western society or Americans, you know, look at the anthem protest, uh, the social justice warriors, all of this is just a, a component of Reconstruction. It's just coming back. Uh, these, that's the unfinished revolution. These people are part of that vanguard, this communist, neo-communist vanguard who are going to change America. It should have happened, in Foner's opinion, back in the 1860s and 70s. If you had any right-thinking people out there, they should have gone out there and been behind all this stuff, but they weren't. And so along comes this, this book by Philip Lee, and uh, it, which takes down this idea that Reconstruction was somehow this good thing for America. And he does it in a way that's so good because he's not saying that uh, there weren't problems in the south there weren't there weren't racial uh, there wasn't racial tension in the south he doesn't say that he doesn't say that white southerners or he doesn't exonerate white southerners for uh, racial violence at times that took place he doesn't say that either but what he does say is that actually the policies created these problems the government itself created much of these problems and so i think that's such a, a refreshing look at how we uh, how we view Reconstruction. So the other thing he does in this particular book, which I think is outstanding, and I'll get into some of the details of the book in a second. The other thing he does in the book is he doesn't confine Reconstruction from 1865 into 1877. He takes Reconstruction the long view. He starts looking at Reconstruction before the war ended and takes it past 1877, because he doesn't just focus on the social aspects of Reconstruction, which even if you focus only on the social aspects of Reconstruction, you can't say Reconstruction ended in 1877. Uh, he goes beyond that. He looks at economic policy. He looks at political Reconstruction. So in that way, this book is, again, such a refreshing departure. And it's not that it's not that long. It's just a little over a couple hundred pages. And um, it's such a... Uh, such a nice, tightly written, concise book, and it really hammers 
in many ways, hammers Eric Foner. I mean, the, the, he, he takes him apart. Uh, and it hammers this view of Reconstruction that's become so prevalent in uh, the historical profession and across the, across the political spectrum. You have people, supposedly conservatives, citing Eric Foner as their guy, their source on the war and Reconstruction. Eric Foner is a card-carrying communist. And yet, we have quote-unquote conservatives running around saying, well, Eric Foner said this about the war, Eric Foner said that, or they're citing James McPherson about the war. I mean, this is, we're living in this bizarro world, uh, and I, I think you can, you can chalk that up to neoconservatism and, and uh, how the neoconservatives really aren't, really that, they're not really conservative. Um, but we're living in this bizarro world where somehow people that would have been uh, just simply marginalized by conservatives uh, you know, even 30 years ago, now are champions of, of conservatives somehow. I mean, this is this is where we've gotten. It's it's absolutely insane. But when you and, and again, there are there are certain minefields in in the historical profession that historians dare not cross most of the time. It's it's uh, uh, Reconstruction's one of them. Uh, if you start going out and attacking Reconstruction. Uh, and you're 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 setting yourself to step on some landmines, according to the profession, because you're going to have to deal with issues of race and, uh, of course, social quote unquote social justice and these type of things. You're going to have to deal with that. Also, another one's the war, uh, because you know again you're going to have to deal with the issue of secession. You're going to have to deal with the issue of slavery. Uh, so you know, a lot of historians just they'll toe the establishment line and say this is what it is because they want jobs and they want they want accolades. They want people to like them. Uh, they want to have uh, you know it's just like uh, in in the global warming, the man-made global warming. Uh, a lot of scientists don't believe in it, but the thing is. Uh, if you don't believe in it and you start publishing papers, you're ostracized. You're, you're booted out of the club. So, uh, his, and, and people want to be in the club, right? So you don't want to buck the trends. You don't want to say, well, wait a second here. There's something more to this. You don't want to be a real scholar, in other words. What you want to do is just toe the establishment line so people like you and you get jobs and you get tenure and you're good and comfortable. And you, basically, you sell yourself out. Now, I think a lot of people believe this stuff. I mean, that's, that's the unfortunate thing. They go out and they believe the phoner thesis. Uh, but uh, even if they don't completely, they, they have to try to pick it apart, you know, subtly and, and not, not just hammer it or not just take it apart with a chainsaw, which is what Philip Lee does. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, the other field, of course, is the uh, post-war uh, South, post-World War II South, uh, because you're dealing with civil rights at that point. And lo if you ever go out and say anything positive about uh, you know, politicians in the uh, post-World War II South, well, you are setting yourself up for taking some vicious attacks. But of course, again, this, this is the folly, as, as a colleague of mine wrote, the folly of nothing but race. Uh, the, these people all had depth. Uh, you know, Sam Irvin, for example, in, in, uh, from North Carolina, had a lot of depth. It wasn't just uh, you know th these issues on civil rights that uh, he was so uh, so famous for or infamous for. Uh, Sam Irvin was a was a strict con strict constructionist when it came to the Constitution. He said a lot of good things about civil liberties. Uh, you had uh, uh, you know for example Richard Russell in Georgia saying a lot of good things about foreign policy leading into the Vietnam War. So there are things you can say about these people that are good. And when you start just saying well. It's nothing but race. Uh, or, you know, take a figure like John C. Calhoun. I see it all the time. Uh, yeah, we can't like Calhoun because of what he said about slavery. Well, what about everything else he said? Uh, so when you just take these people and just say, well, oh, thank, thank goodness uh, they, these people were all defeated. 
These people were just you know, shunned and marginalized because it's good, because these people are just evil. When you start doing that, you, you miss the depth of what they said about a variety of issues. Certainly, we can say, well, we don't agree with, with Calhoun's position on slavery as a positive good. Uh, we can say that in the 21st century. It doesn't make us heroes for saying that. Gosh, I mean, who wouldn't say that in the 21st century? And this is, of course, you get in the position where you have these people, they, they think they're they're puffing their chest out and, sla and you know, slapping themselves on the chest. I oppose John C. Calhoun because I oppose slavery. Well, who doesn't in the 21st century? That's just so stupid. Uh, but this is what uh, you know people think they need to do, and so then you can't say anything good about John C. Calhoun, or you can't say anything good. I oppose Sam Irvin because I oppose segregation. Well, I mean, who doesn't in the 21st century, right? Uh, well, I, I say who doesn't. Obviously, there are some people on the left who are starting to support segregation. Uh, you see it all the time. You know, when you have um, uh, <laughs> you, you see headlines about this all the time where you have, uh, you know, segregated now places at colleges and universities and these type of things. So they do believe in it. Uh, just if they're behind it, then it's okay. Uh, so, but I mean, this is, this is the thing when you, it's an anti-intellectual charge, uh, when you start saying things like this. And so reconstruction's that way too. Uh, you know, when you start going out there and, 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 um, Basically, looking at Reconstruction as this unfinished revolution, that's an anti-intellectual. That's a political statement, not a historical statement. Uh, and so what Lee takes, what Lee says, is that Reconstruction, he's basically taken the position that was, that was accepted for years, that Reconstruction really was a tragedy in a lot of ways. And the people that suffered in Reconstruction were Southerners, black and white, and not just Southerners, but Northerners too. Because what happened in Reconstruction is we got this industrial capitalist society where you had major corruption. Lee does not shy away. And it, for example, uh, let me just say this. It's not spelled L-E-E. -E, it's L-E-I-G-H. Uh, Lee does not shy away from taking the position that um, the policies of the Republican Party set the United States back in many ways. They didn't move the United States forward. They set the United States back, uh, and it's it's punishment uh, that the South faced, and the 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 thing is, blue collar working class Americans also faced economic punishment because of Reconstruction as well, uh, because of the policies the Republican Party advocated. And one of the things he does such a good job on is railroads. Uh, now Lee, uh, I think by trade, he's got an MBA. So he's, he's interested in business and economics uh, by trade. And so he does a really good job looking at the economic consequences of Reconstruction. He also focuses on the social, but he does a nice job uh, peeling back the corruption from the Republican Party. And for years, this is what the quote-unquote un, quote Dunning School did. Uh, William Archambault Dunning, who was not a Southerner, by the way, wrote a really good book, and now it's been denounced because he was a racist. Well, who wasn't a racist? Again, in the early 20th century, this is just anti-intellectual discourse. Uh, well, that person's a racist. They have nothing good to say. Okay, uh, you know, that means we're not going to read uh, Aristotle. That means we're not going to read Plato, for example. They were racists, so we're not going to read them. Uh, but uh, Dunning had a lot of good things to say about Reconstruction, and one of them was that Reconstruction was political and economic. You, you look at his book, uh, he, he talks about not just the political aspects of Reconstruction, but the, but the economic impacts, and one of the things the Dunning School would often point out is the corruption. 
the massive rampant corruption in the South and also in the general government that uh, was just, uh, you know, foisted on the American public by the corrupt Republican Party. And so when Lee goes after railroads, he's exposing all of that corruption. The railroads, which of course led to the tremendous wealth of the Gilded Age, would not have been possible without Republican Party corruption. And this is not something that people often talk about. Uh, when you look at what happens with railroad legislation, Western land legislation in particular as well, because that's tied into it. You, you, you can't look at this sectional conflict without understanding the impact of the railroads that we're having on it and why we're trying to organize these territories, because people wanted a transcontinental railroad. And one of the things they want with that transcontinental railroad is to be able to sell land in the West. And so you have people like Stephen Douglas of Illinois, the little giant, who, of course, the very famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, Douglas was in the Senate, and he dies early in the war. Um, and he had defeated Lincoln. Uh, dies early in the war, though. But Douglas was interested in organizing the Kansas and Nebraska Territory for a couple of reasons. One is because he had presidential ambitions, and he thought that if he could organize these territories under popular sovereignty, or as it later became known as squatter sovereignty, uh, he would gain votes in the South, and, of course, they would support him for president. The other was because he stood to make a lot of money by organizing this territory because he owned a lot of, a lot of land through there, and they were gonna have to, it was going to have to be purchased to build the railroad, and Douglas was going to make out like gangbusters in this. So uh, that was always a driving factor in Western land legislation to get not just, not, I mean, on the surface, it's like we're going to get uh, good, hardworking uh, white Americans out there, and uh, we're going to sell this land. And again, I, I didn't say white Americans, on, uh, but that wasn't a mistake. This is what the Republican Party said they wanted out there. The one book that Eric Foner actually wrote that was decent was his uh, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, which gets into the rampant racism of the Republican Party, uh, which, again, if you, if, you just, if you just show the whole picture of America, uh, the South is not so demonized anymore um, because, because all of this stuff is going on all over the place. Okay, so, uh, but it, they wanted to get white farmers in the West but that was the surface. What they really wanted was to get this land for railroad corporations so they could build railroads. And so you have government subsidies and you have all this stuff going on. You have, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's massive corruption. He gets into the credit mobilier scandal, uh, which was massive corruption. Uh, the fact that when you had this Homestead legislation, you had the Homestead Act of 1862, which is not often considered part of Reconstruction, but it was, as Lee accurately shows, it was part of Reconstruction because what you have with the Homestead Act of 1862 is that you have people being able to buy land for dirt cheap, or you can you don't even have to purchase it. You just go live on it. You put a, put, a, put a house on it, and you get it for free. The thing is, people would get claims, and then the railroad companies would come in, and they would purchase these claims from people, and then the government later on, the Congress later on, passed more legislation, giving them huge amounts of right-of-ways when they built their rail lines through it. So then those those government uh, those uh, railroad companies could sell that land and make out again like gangbusters. So it's corruption that's stuff in the pockets of northern industrialists. It is this this Hamiltonian, which is why I say Hamilton screwed up America. This Hamiltonian enterprise, essentially, of state capitalism that's driving this Western land legislation, that's driving the railroads out West, and it's hurting middle-class and working-class Americans. 
while it's fattening the wallets of some big cats out there and, and railroad corporations and even the Congress because they're getting kickbacks. There's massive amounts of graft, which was later uh, shown, and, and all kinds of people were tied into this. Uh, you couldn't find a Republican Party politician, really, in the late 19th century. Republican Party is the key, who was not making out on some form of corruption, particularly at the, at the federal level. They all were. This is the Republican Party. So Lee does such a good job showing how corrupt and nasty the Republican Party really was when it came to Western land legislation. Um, and I think that's one of the great parts of the book. He also shows the impact pensions had on corruption in Washington, D.C. This is another part of, of the uh, Reconstruction period that's not really discussed that much. And he basically says, look, people were saying for years that Southerners needed to pay reparations for the war. And he takes a very unconventional stand here, and he says they've already done it because of taxes. Southerners are paying large amounts of taxes, just like Northerners, but large amounts of taxes, in fact, maybe even more than, than Northerners, but they were getting nothing out of it. Northerners, uh, particularly Union veterans, were getting, were getting subsidies from the government through pensions. Now, eventually, Confederate soldiers received a pension, too, eventually. But uh, in the late 19th century, there was not even any discussion about that. Uh, Southerners were having to raise their own funds to help people that had lost limbs or help people that were wounded and uh, you know destitute because of the war. They were having to raise private contributions and ladies' auxiliary organizations to try to do these things. This is where you had a lot of the, a lot of the monuments being built in the South through these type of organizations to honor the veterans uh, and honor the soldiers who had died for, for the cause in the South, whereas in the North, all of this stuff was being built with taxpayer dollars by Southerners, essentially. I mean, so Southerners were being double-taxed. They're trying to do this stuff for themselves, trying to raise some private funds. And not just that, they're also paying for all these northern monuments and northern pensions. In fact, pensions were so, so rampant. It was such a corrupt thing that uh, one day a week was set aside for pensions in uh, the, every every uh, during the congressional uh, uh, sessions. So uh, you had uh, the Grand Army of the Republic the G.A.R., uh, this was a Republican Party lobbying organization under, uh, under the guise of uh, it's a union veterans organization. No, it was a Republican Party lobbying organization, and their job was to try to get as many of the people who were a part of the G.A.R., uh, the Grand Army of the Republic, as many people as they could to get uh, pensions. And this is why when Grover Cleveland took office in 1885 and then again in 1889, uh, I'm sorry, again in 1893, excuse me, 1885 and 1893, this is why he was vetoing all this legislation, because all these pensions, or a lot of these pensions, I should say, were fraudulent. Now, Cleveland signed more pensions than he vetoed, but he was vetoing all kinds of pensions because he said, this guy didn't get diarrhea from the war. Uh, he got diarrhea because he had diarrhea. I mean, there's no pension there. This guy fell off a ladder, uh, you know, just a year ago. That's not a wound from the war. So you had all these fraudulent pensions. This is basically welfare that's being uh, established by the general government in the name of pensions, in the name of helping soldiers. Uh, but all we had here was government corruption, and it was being funded by southern taxpayers who couldn't even pay their own taxes, who couldn't even support their own people who had been wounded in the war who didn't get pensions. 
So uh, this is, I mean, it's it's insanity, really, is what you have. And Lee does a very good job showing the corruption of the pensions. Uh, he also does a good job in painting the Republican Party as a party that wasn't really that interested in the plight of, flo- of former slaves. Now, this is not necessarily unconventional. Uh, he takes down Abraham Lincoln in that way, for example, which is unconventional. I mean, to take down Lincoln, uh, that's taking down a demigod in the United States. That is unconventional. Um, but he also shows that a lot of the, the party itself really wasn't that interested in helping out former slaves. Uh, there were people who were, of course, uh, but that this was more of a political game to try to gain power in the South. And uh, people like Hiram Rhodes Revels, who was the first African-American member of the United States Senate, recognized this. And actually, Revels wrote a letter uh, near the end of the official end of Reconstruction where he complained that the Republican Party no longer really supported anything they were for. They were just for votes that that uh, black Southerners have become pawns in a bigger political game to secure power. And there's no doubt about that's what's going on. Uh, you know, th- th- there's no doubt about the fact that, that the Republican Party wasn't really that interested in helping out uh, uh, former slaves. What they were interested in is gaining votes so they could control the Congress, so they could control the state houses, so they could, so they could boost spending, so they could get, pass legislation in these states uh, allowing them to confiscate land through taxes and then go in and buy the plantations themselves. Um, for example, Harriet Beecher Stowe's son uh, picked up a plantation in the South, uh, where uh, in Florida actually he picked up a plantation there, and uh, through through this this type of process where you know taxes were used to to uh, get the land confiscated, and then he bought the plantation, and he starts writing about how he doesn't like the black laborers. He thinks they're lazy and they don't do anything. Here is a guy that's now bashing uh, the people that he supposedly wanted to help. Uh, so the hypocrisy knows no bounds in all of this. I mean, it's just and, and again, uh, this is this is a stuff that you're not going to get. But Lee. Again, he goes where angels fear to tread. I mean, this this is amazing stuff that this guy here we are in 2017 is able is willing to write these things. Now, Lee is not a professional historian; he's an amateur amateur historian, but he's he's willing to write this stuff. I mean, it's amazing that somebody's willing to say these things uh, because this stuff. Oh, well, you can't say that uh, for fear of re- being branded someone who who doesn't support the social justice uh, cause. Uh, but I think Lee's point in all this is that this really sets back rec- real reconciliation. In fact, he has a wonderful chapter. I think one of the best chapters in the book uh, is actually a chapter entitled, let me get it pulled up here, i got to pull it up, entitled Racial Adjustment. Um, and then he has a, chi- a the following chapter is Protracted Consequences. And so the racial adjustment chapter gets into people like Booker T. Washington, who really was interested in racial racial uh, reconciliation? Uh, Washington, for example, this is an unknown part of Booker T. Washington. And when I went over the uh, the a- American Historical Association statement on on Confederate statues, I brought up Washington. But he actually wrote a letter uh, to a uh, and if you listen to that podcast, you know this, but maybe you haven't heard that one yet. He wrote a letter where he supported the the construction and erection of Confederate monuments. And he said this is good for both races. It's good for everyone to understand who, who, who are some people we should really emulate in the South. 
uh, who are and, and so Washington was highly interested in race, racial reconciliation. If you go back and look at uh, Macon County, Alabama, where Tuskegee Institute is located, Washington voted all the time. Uh, he was interested in, in some type of adjustment that would be uh, a smooth transition because he understood that even though privately he supported political and, and uh, civil rights and he, he hoped they could come faster than what they were going, publicly he, he understood the reality of the situation that there was going to have to be some type of adjustment, period. Uh, you couldn't just essentially throw everyone to the wolves. This is, this is what people were saying. You had... You had all these former slaves, most of them who don't have any education. They did, they did have skills. A lot of them had skills, uh, but they had no economic prospects. And so Washington's saying we need to get them an education and we need to get them some economic prospects. And when you do that, you're going to create a climate that's much more conducive to racial reconciliation uh, because you're going to create an alliance, essentially. And for a time, the populace even had a type of racial alliance. There were people that were trying to build a Southern alliance, white and black, uh, and that was only undermined by some of the terrible economic dislocation of the 1890s, which was in essence caused by the Republican Party policies. Uh, the crash of the 1890s, the Depression, the panic of the 1890s that took place when Cleveland took office in his second term uh, was caused by things like the Sherman uh, Silver Purchase Act. Uh, and uh, it was caused by the fact that the government was running the economy into the ground. Uh, and so it was caused by the Republican Party. And uh, so the terrible economic dislocation of the 1890s, there's no doubt that this, this, this corporate, uh, corporate capitalism, state capitalism that was foisted on America again by the Republican Party was very much behind it. And you have to understand the economic parts of Reconstruction to get into that. So when I, again, I think Lee does an admirable job of this. And he finishes... The book by saying, look, if we had a different view of Reconstruction, and I agree with him in this 100%, if we had a different view of Reconstruction, where Reconstruction really was a tragedy, that the missed opportunity of real racial reconciliation, it, a revolution is a dangerous thing. What we should have been seeking is real reconciliation. And he's highly, he's not critical of the Redeemers. Uh, the, the conservative Democrats who came in and, and he said, look, for all the faults these people had, they were the best the South could hope for at this point because th during that redeeming period that we actually had the least amount of racial violence in the South uh, because they were conservatives. They were interested in real reconciliation. He said, that's the real missed opportunity. Those are the people that should be championed. And if they were championed, these former Confederate leaders who were actually taking control of the South at that point, if they were championed like they should be, we wouldn't have the modern uh, iconoclasm that's going on now where statues are being torn down, uh, people who were, you know, Robert E. Lee should never be vilified. And I, I, Lee is, is uh, highly laudatory of Robert E. Lee. Philip Lee is highly laudatory of Robert E. Lee because he really was interested in real reconciliation. Uh, here's a guy that should be championed north and south as a symbol of what could have been but wasn't. Why? Because we had this we have this view of America that we need this neo-Marxist vanguard to tear everything down and start over, which Lee points out Nobody was going to support during Reconstruction. No, no, I mean, there were a few people out there supporting these things, but most people were not for that. Uh, they didn't believe in that, and uh, they just kind of wanted the status quo again. 
But this idea that somehow a revolution should have taken place is fueling some of the nastiness that's going on in America today. And that, again, is the real tragedy of everything. So this is why I think you should run out and buy this book. Again, it's a good book. He's very balanced. He, he, he gives, the, he gives uh, white Southern, he's very critical of white Southerners who are interested in, in uh, you know, uh, hostile race relations. Uh, he's also very critical of, of Northerners who were foisting this poverty on the South. Uh, punished by poverty, which is what the Kennedy brothers have written a, a book on, on the South after the war. Punished by poverty. And the South was punished fearfully by poverty and by this Republican Party economic machine and high taxes and everything else that were going on there being double taxed. All this stuff is part of Reconstruction. In fact, I think you can make a case that Reconstruction never really ended. It just was transferred in different ways. You know, Social Reconstruction never really ended. Uh, economic Reconstruction, political Reconstruction, all that stuff is still ongoing. It's never ended. There's no end date to Reconstruction. We're still part of it. We're still recreating America, as Barack Obama famously said in 2009 when he took his first, first oath of office. We're recreating America, he said. Remaking America, he called it. So it's still ongoing. So going out and buy Southern Reconstruction, you get on Amazon, um, and uh, it's well worth your time to purchase this book. I'll see you next time on The Brian Report.